Hello and welcome to a conversation that is part of this week's joint symposium on protecting democracy, foreign interference, voter confidence, and defensive strategies in the 2020 elections and beyond. I'm Carrie Cordero from the Center for a New American Security, and I'm joined today by my colleague, Professor Claire Finkelstein, who is the faculty director of the Center for Ethics and Rule of Law at the University of Pennsylvania's Law School. Claire Finkelstein will join me in recognizing in a few minutes our guest, Chris Krebs, who is the first director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency of the Department of Homeland Security, which obviously has a tremendous amount of responsibilities um, in providing for the security of this year's 2020 election and uh, enhancing voter confidence in the election. And so I know we're gonna have a really interesting conversation with him once we get underway. Just to provide a little bit of context for our listeners, this conversation is part of a project that the Center for New American Security, the Center for Ethics and Rule of Law, Searle at Penn Law, and the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania have all been jointly coordinating this summer. And there's several components that I just wanna um, bring to our listeners' awareness for that project. Um, this conversation is part of a symposium that's taking place this week. And there are two panel discussions that also are accompanying the symposium this week, both of which will be made available on uh, the website of the Center for New American Security. We also have an ongoing written commentary series that I'd like to direct your attention to. Um, we've been releasing since the middle of August up until this week, weekly commentary pieces from experts on a range of issues related to foreign interference and uh, fostering confidence in elections. Our first few pieces focused on Europe in particular. Um, we have lessons from Europe and election integrity that was written by Eric Bratberg. Nina Jankowitz um, submitted a piece and has a written commentary focused on disinformation uh, and election integrity issues in Poland. Shemen Keitner, a professor of international law, uh, has a written commentary in the series that, that brings to light international law dimensions and principles for fostering election confidence. And then shifting to the United States, we were fortunate to have a contribution from Dan Vallone of More in Common, which uh, focused in particular on how voters are actually thinking about the election and the issue of foreign interference. We've had a piece submitted at the state level from a deputy secretary of state, Scott Bates from the state of Connecticut, focusing on what states and localities are doing to protect the election. And our final piece that concludes the series is from our guest who's joining us today, Chris Krebs, the director of CISA. So I hope that you will uh, go to CNAS's webpage and read each of those written commentaries, which provides an important perspective on the issue of foreign interference, election integrity, and how we can promote confidence in the 2020 US election. So with that, I am delighted to welcome Chris Krebs um, to join Claire and I for this conversation. Chris is the first director of the Department of Homeland Security, Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, known as CISA. 
Um, he previously was the undersecretary for CISA's predecessor, the National Protection and Programs Directorate, and has been leading CISA's efforts to protect this year's election and make it as secure as possible, which involves a wide range of coordination that I know we will um, get to talk about. Prior to coming to DHS, he was in the private sector working on cybersecurity policy and technology issues, and also had pre previously been at DHS. So this is actually his second tour. Um, so Chris Krebs, welcome to the conversation. We're delighted to have your participation um, in this conversation, as well as in the commentary series. And so I hope that our listeners will definitely take a look at that piece. Um, at this point, I'd like to hand things over to Professor Claire Finkelstein, who is going to kick things off with us, um, to lay the foundation for what CISA's role is in this election, in particular, how that role has evolved over the last several years since the experience of the 2016 election. Claire? Thank you so much, Carrie, and uh, it's such a pleasure to be working with CNAS and the Annenberg Public Policy Center on this very important election security initiative. And uh, I can think of no um, more perfect guest to kick off our project with than uh, Chris Krebs. Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much. Uh, I wonder if you could just start by explaining the reason for the creation of CISA and uh, why it was felt that uh, a new entity was needed, why the shift away from the National Protection and Programs Directorate? Well, let me, let me start with that last question. Uh, the National Protection and Programs Directorate doesn't tell you much of anything, does it, of what, what our mission was. No, and it doesn't. Within, so within the context, actually, of our election security mission, uh, back in 2016, but but even kind of um, through 17 and 18, as we were prepping for the midterms, uh, it, I tell you what, a name, there's so much in a name, there's so much in branding. And so when we would go out and try to meet new stakeholders and, you know, say, hey, we're with the National Protection Programs Director, it, they'd kind of look at you like you had two heads. And, and in <laughs> some cases, it actually does sound like, as I've, I've said before, a Russian intelligence service. So um, to me, it was critically important as I came in in March of 2017 that we worked with the Congress, worked with our stakeholders in the critical infrastructure community to get a, an appropriate brand and an appropriate name on this agency so that we could, A, go out there and engage our stakeholders and, and, and they would immediately understand who we are, you know, cybersecurity and infrastructure security. Uh, we like security so much it's in our name twice. Uh, but we could tell them who we are. And second, it would also help on the recruiting front. And uh, we have, we've absolutely seen uh, dividends paid out um, from, from both of those. Uh, but but like, I, like I kind of mentioned at the beginning, the, the NPPD piece has been around for, had been around for quite some time. And it was a smaller part of the original Department of Homeland Security's established in 2003. But back then it was obviously much more focused on terrorist threats uh, in physical threats. But over time, as more uh, things are connected to the internet, as more actors have developed capabilities, the cybersecurity piece from a civilian cybersecurity agency um, 
uh, the, the the need for that just dramatically increased. And so working with Congress again, we got we got this agency stood up as a true operational agency like TSA, like right. FEMA within uh, DHS. We're, we're coming up on our second uh, second birthday or second anniversary here in, in November. And uh, we, you know, I think the election mission alone shows that that we absolutely have something to contribute to uh, the, the national security uh, mission. And uh, we're here to stay. Wonderful. So when you think about uh, cybersecurity, of course, it covers a wide variety of possible threats. Mm -hmm. And um, the public uh, has focused in recent years quite a bit on disinformation. Uh, but then we have other kinds of cybersecurity. We have, we have hacking. Um, we have uh, malicious attacks that can infect computers, sending viruses. What exactly is the, the mandate of the Cybersecurity and Infra Infrastructure Security Agency? What sort of threat uh, is the agency most focused on? Yeah, so I, what, what you're teasing out here is a very, uh, it's a timely question. Where does disinformation and misinformation, where do those activities fit in the broader national security space? This is what I've, you know, for the last couple of years, called this the two Susans problem. And I get that from uh, Professor Susan Landau and Susan Hennessy have different approaches on whether disinfo and countering disinfo should be uh, considered in the national security conversation within cyber or not. So um, I, I think that, that the jury's out. I think there remains a you know, community and academic conversation where it fits in. But go back to 2016, go back to the 2017 intelligence community assessment of what happened with the uh, Russian interference in the 16 election. They, they really carve out three distinct uh, vectors of activity. First is election infrastructure and the, the hacking of uh, whether it's state uh, voter registration databases or election boards. And the second is hack, hack and leak campaigns against uh, political campaigns, the parties, the political operatives. You think about the Podesta emails and the DNC uh, hack. And then the third piece is this broader disinformation campaign, which is really more structured around finding faults and divisions within our society and amplifying both sides, pitting us against each other. Ultimately, um, when you think about the, the objective, the overarching strategic objective of all three of those, um, of those three activities, it's to ultimately undermine confidence in our democratic processes, our, our democratic institutions. And so uh, what we have been focused on here at CISA for the last really three and a half years uh, is that is primarily that first bucket of election infrastructure. So improving the cybersecurity in the defenses, and we absolutely have improved across the board at state and local election um, uh, systems, that their cybersecurity posture but also helping uh, political campaigns, the, the, the actual Trump and Biden campaigns themselves, you know, improve their cybersecurity. And then thinking on the last piece where we're more in a supporting role um, uh, is, is again, trying to introduce more, uh, I, this is a crazy thing to say, I know, but introduce more critical thinking into the American public on the information that's being presented to you, particularly as things come across Facebook and Twitter uh, you know, think before you like, think before you share, do a little independent research to validate some of the crazy claims and conspiracies that are circulating um, these days. Right. Well, that, and that sounds very sensible. 
Um, with regard to election infrastructure, since that's one of the um, mm -hmm. primary um, objects that you're focused on, uh, tell us a little bit about what you saw coming out of the midterms, uh, what we saw also in the transition from you know, what happened in 2016 and the sort of awakening that um, the American public had um, mm -hmm. to what we're facing now in 2020. Uh, coming out of the midterms, we did not have major reports of uh, election hacking. Uh, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but there, there was a feeling that states had stepped up their game. Uh, there, there were uh, funds from the federal government to assist states in improving their security. However, no one seems to really have that level of confidence going into the 2020 uh, elections. Can you talk a little bit about how you see the evolving uh, election infrastructure threats? Sure. And, and this is, it's, it's the right way to frame the question. And I would even take it back a little bit more to 2016. You know, what, what's the progress we've made from 16 uh, to now? And it's, it's really remarkable, um, the accomplishments we've, we've achieved with our state and local partners. Again, under constitution, the, the federal or the state uh, states run elections, Article One, Section Four. They determine the time, place, and manner of the elections. And so, what what we do is, as they make those decisions, and these are these are traditional in law, um, we provide support to them, cybersecurity support. We provide coordinating mechanisms. We provide intelligence and information sharing. We make sure that they're in the position to best defend their networks and best defend their systems. Um, in 2016, though, it, it was a bit of an ad hoc approach purely because this was an emerging threat. Um, and so there weren't established structures. There wasn't an established federal uh, election security apparatus. And we've really worked over the last three and a half years to build a vibrant, robust community of practice around state and local election security. We have the things, the things we have now, rather, uh, give us confidence that if, if I've got a piece of information or intelligence, I can get it into the hands of somebody that needs to do something about it almost immediately. Just in a near quick follow-up. So can you yep. just explain uh, to, to our listeners how vulnerable, for example, are our voter registration rolls? And how, uh, how, because that was one of the things that we had reports mm -hmm. on in 2016, that while there wasn't actual hacking into uh, the voting booths, as far as we know, the voting systems, right. there, there was hacking or attempted hacking into the voter registration rolls. Uh, are we so vulnerable to that? And has the vulnerability potentially spread even to um, sort of the ballots? Right. So the, um, some of the activity that took place in 2016 uh, was targeting voter, uh, voter registration databases. As you mentioned, Illinois is one of those examples where they, they, they were able to penetrate the, um, the database. Now, what we have really focused on is, is thinking about the riskiest bits of the election process. And uh, risk is, a, is this calculus or, or this formula of vulnerability, threat, and consequence all wrapped up in one. And our assessment over the, over the years has been if an actor was going to achieve some kind of outcome at scale, they would, they would most likely focus on areas that were highly centralized and highly connected. And voter registration databases truly meet that definition. They're required by law. Every state's got to have a, a database. And um, 
they 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 play that role for the states and you have to or, and you have to be able to distribute it out to the the communities to the counties and so again we're, we bring it back to what's the riskiest bit and then how do we treat that as a high value asset put the appropriate protections around the center for election innovation and research just a couple of weeks ago released its biennial report studying the security posture of voter registration databases and the research that they conducted uh, indicates that behaviors have improved. Um, multi-factor authentication is on the upswing. Uh, logging and auditing of uh, the roles is, is on the upswing, the backups, all those sorts of resilience measures. And so when I think about where we are compared to 2016 on voter registration database, again, we're much more confident in the security posture, but more importantly, we're, we're more confident in the resilience of the system. And I talk about in my, um, in my piece that I wrote for Kerry uh, and CNAS, uh, the, the way that we look at infrastructure in general is that we want more resilient infrastructure that assumes some kind of acceptance of failure. And that if you do have a bad day, you'll still be able to achieve the outcomes that we want. And I borrow a quote from um, a, the late comedian, Mitch Hedberg, and you'll read this in the piece, but you know, we want our nation's infrastructure to function a lot like escalators because an escalator can never break. It can only turn into stairs. You should never see an escalator temporarily out of order sign, just escalator temporarily stairs. Sorry for the convenience. So our concept here for voter registration databases is even if a voter registration database in the next 50 days gets locked up, for instance, by a ransomware attack, we have failover mechanisms. We have backups that are offline that we can pop back up. Or even worst case, you know what? We have a analog printout of the voter registration database that can be distributed to the polling location. So again, it's gonna take a little bit more effort, a little bit more energy to get where we need to go, but we can still execute the, the function of voting despite the attack. So Chris, this is Carrie Cordero. I wanna, um, I wanna in a minute turn our attention a little bit more specifically to foreign influence and the threat that we're mm -hmm. seeing from foreign actors. But before we do that, I do wanna ask you um, a follow-up question that pertains to the coordination and, and this improvement that you've seen um, with, a, with a first row view in terms of the coordination between the federal government and the states mm -hmm. to be able to build resilience into their system. And so I guess my question is, is from your perspective, what changed in this interagency or intergovernmental effort? Because when I think back to the reports that I read um, in sort of leading up to the 2016 election where DHS was sort of cautiously trying to figure out how to communicate with the states that they needed to be more secure, but but at least according to public reports, there was a lot of resistance yeah. from the state level about coordinating with DHS, a lot of federalism concerns that you, you mentioned a few minutes ago. Um, so, so from your perspective, like what changed to be able, that enabled you and CISA to be able to improve these partnerships yeah. and therefore improve the security and resiliency of the systems? So two key things. One, a lot of airline miles, a lot of traveling across this country, meeting with our partners, meeting with state and local election officials. And it was not just me. It was Matt Masterson, who's my lead for election security. It's my regional team. We're out there every single day building partnerships, building relationships. And it was tough at the beginning. We caught a lot of heat 
um, for really nothing more than um, just trying to uh, trying to pull a team together, but not understanding necessarily clearly what the threat was. And so that's what I think the second piece is. And that was, it was really getting everybody on board that the Russians had pulled together a playbook on how to attack an, an election. And now that the playbook was out there, any actor, whether it was Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, other actors, they knew, uh, you know, they had a game plan they could follow. And, and we fully anticipate seeing certain activities or certain elements of the 2016 Russian playbook to pop up, whether it's Iran doing it and spreading, you know, false information or, or really driving conflict uh, across society. Those are the sorts of things that we, we fully anticipate seeing. And once we were able to really make that, you know, have that resonate across the community um, and we had the trusted relationships that we'd put a lot of personal time into, that was the magic, you know, the, the magic recipe for being able to build something uh, uh, that was enduring. So let's dive in a little bit more to, to the threats and particularly the foreign influence threats. Um, you know, some outside observers who are looking at the threats see a wide variety of threats to the integrity of election, foreign influence, domestic polarization, um, difficulties with the sophistication of the election machinery and technology, social issues that we're seeing going on that are playing into the public dialogue. From where you sit, as the head of CISA, how do you evaluate the significance of the threats? Are you prime, in other words, are you primarily concerned about the foreign influence threats, the threats from, from Russia or other authoritarian governments? Or, or do you feel like some of the different threats are, are more balanced? Well, uh, so given the area that we have federal primacy on effectively, which is the election, uh, election infrastructure piece in support of state and local governments, I spend the majority of my time thinking about how that piece can go wrong, how the resilience of the process can fail, how um, you know, ultimately the voters can lose confidence in the process in and of itself. And so you know, as we were going on that traveling road show, talking about threats and things like that, yes, we focused on the nation state actor, but the nation state actor piece is really hard to get to resonate with the community because when a Russian or a Chinese or whomever actor penetrates your system, they're doing so in a very quiet way to avoid and evade detection. Uh, ransomware actors do not act that way. Ransomware actors show up and they lock your systems up. They tell you right on their face uh, who they are and what they're trying to accomplish here. So yes, we were able to talk about the playbook, but still when you're talking about um, you know, some, uh, some jurisdiction uh, that, that may be small or more rural, they, they may not really be able to, you know, the, the Russia, China, Iran piece may not resonate with them. So, but then we start talking about ransomware and, and every single American at this point has had some sort of exposure or encounter with a ransomware uh, service disruption. And so that, that really helped us. And the good news is, um, you know, if you can defend against a lot of the, the more prevalent ransomware actors, then you can uh, also likely put a lot of friction into the operations of a advanced persistent threat actor. So, so again, that's where we've put a, a lot of focus and that has driven improved behaviors. On the, the influence side, um, the disinfo side, we also spend um, a good bit of effort there, but it's more, like I mentioned at the onset, about improving awareness of the threat and 
giving Americans the tools that they can use um, to not become, you know, part of the game. And, and in, in a certain sense, the way I've talked about this before is, is disinfo is almost a supply and demand side equation where the intelligence community, the law enforcement community, and Department of Defense are, are working, focusing on uh, disrupting the supply. We, on the other hand, look on the demand, and we're trying to um, we're trying to lessen the demand for disinfo. Um, and, and the unfortunate thing right now is we have just a lot of people that that are, are sponges for information presented to them, and we've got to help them make better decisions, uh, more informed decisions on how they view information that's coming to them on social media or in online chat rooms. And, and it's really hard. I mean, you look at just the explosion of some of these, these fringe elements like QAnon, it's, it's taking off. Um, we've got to reintroduce a little bit of critical thinking uh, back into society. So let me just follow up. I'm going to hand it over to Claire in a, in a minute to um, who's going to follow up with some questions related specifically to how the pandemic is adding this additional layer mm -hmm of uh, challenges to the administration of the election, the security and, and the conduct of the election. But, but I wanna focus for a minute on, on what you mentioned in terms of the awareness of the threat. Um, as, you may, as I think you know, you know, I've spent a lot of time focused my research on the issue of intelligence transparency and what yeah. the intel community and the interagency is telling the public, but then also what they're telling to Congress as the intermediary between um, uh, between the government and, and the people. And so, um, you know, obviously the issue of, of what the community is reporting to Congress has been an issue, you know, that's been back and forth in the news a lot lately. Um, from your perspective, how is the process going from CISA's perspective in terms of being able to inform Congress about what you're seeing about the state of election security? Are you still doing briefings? Are you still providing reports to Congress? Are you keeping them up to date on at least your piece of the world in terms of how things are looking for the November election? Yeah, so CISA is not a member of the intelligence community. We're not a Title 50 agency. We are focused on working with state and local partners and providing them the technical services and support they need to secure their systems. And so, you know, we are, you know, we generally operate in an unclassified space. And so we brief uh, everybody that will listen to us, really. Um, I am absolutely a believer that the more you get out there and talk about the things you're doing from, from CISA's perspective, our cybersecurity perspective, then uh, we're all better off. And, and even on the disinfo side, I am a firm believer that sunlight is the best uh, disinfectant. Now, I'll admit this, that I don't think I fully appreciated some of the trade-offs that you have to make and just how complicated and, and difficult it is to figure out what's, what's the right amount of information to provide on a threat, because there's absolutely a uh, concern or consideration that, um, you may in some sense be doing the adversaries work for them that part of their plan their strategy is to allow you to find out certain information that you then amplify for them so it's it's incredibly challenging we contribute to those con uh, conversations but ultimately we're not the uh, the the you know originating authority so we don't have declassification authority in that space but we absolutely participate in those those conversations but again ultimately is we get more 
ta uh, tactical information. What I really mean more than anything by that is, is we get more information on how the adversary, whether it's Russia, China, or Iran, is doing the things they're doing, not the substance of it, but their techniques. The more we get out to educate people that they can spot certain types of campaigns, certain types of activities. And so they, you know, the, the content itself can be interchangeable, but the method, uh, more we can educate and increase awareness on methodologies, for instance, I think we'll be better off. But, but they do evolve quite quickly uh, when you, you know, best example is uh, 2016, there was a lot of social media uh, uh, use, but based on partnerships developed between government and industry and the social media platforms, they've effectively disrupted that approach, that technique. And now you're seeing more, um, more standing up of, of websites and, and what looks like legit media uh, rather than using social media personas to, to uh, uh, amplify uh, disinfo. Wonderful. Chris, um, Claire Finkelstein, just to follow up now, as Carrie suggested, on some of the more specific issues that we're confronting in the 2020 elections, due to a sort of witch's brew of pandemic, and as you say, a significant risk of uh, uh, foreign source disinformation. Um, I wonder if you could first explain what we're seeing in terms of patterns of disinformation. One of the things that, that you have noted in your uh, public statements, for example, is um, the fact that in addition to Russia, other countries are getting into the mix, such as Iran. Um, do, can we expect to see um, a significant amount of disinformation at the intersection of the pandemic and election security issues? I have in mind particular concerns about the safety of, of polling places, uh, whether or not there will be attempts to suppress voter turnout by giving false information uh, potentially about uh, whether or not certain polling places are safe to go to, either from a disease standpoint or from mm -hmm. another kind of security threat, such as an active shooter. One could imagine, for example, um, with so many more people now concerned to vote in person uh, because of concerns about mail-in ballots and concerns about the post office, that there might be um, that might be a target-rich environment for disinformation surrounding the safety of polling places. So what are your thoughts about that and where might we expect some of the uh, potential risks of disinformation to come from? Yeah, I, so just to start off at the top, Dr. Fauci a couple weeks ago talked about how uh, he, so, he sees no reason assuming the appropriate safety considerations are put in place that in-person voting shouldn't happen. In-person in, in voting is safe if you put the appropriate safety considerations in place. And I do think that the majority of voting in the United States will happen in person. I, I plan to vote in person, probably early voting uh, here in Virginia, but, but I, will, I do plan on voting in person. Um, but to, to the bigger point, it, yeah, the, you know, anytime that you've got a degree of uncertainty around an issue, that opens up the, um, the possibility or the opportunity space for a bad actor to come in and push one side or the other or both. Uh, so should we see, you know, we've already seen China doing this, trying to change the narrative on how um, the coronavirus um, spread globally, you know, pushing back on the United States, blaming us in certain cases. There's space there for them to operate um, on the, uh, the voting that's in front of us. 
I would fully anticipate things like, uh, you know, targeting of, of the, the safety and security of, of mail-in voting, absentee voting, that, that's, that's ripe for foreign activity as well. Um, so again, it, it's the, the key takeaway here on elections, on election information, we really need to, to focus on the trusted sources of information, and that is our state and local election officials. So if you have any questions whatsoever about uh, uh, the election that's coming up in, in wherever you live, go to your state secretary of state, go to your state officials. And, and that really boils down to us. Three things um, in the run up uh, the next 50 plus days. First, we need prepared voters. In some way, shape or form, I guarantee you, way voting happens in your state is going to change a little bit. Um, that whether it's the place you vote or the way you vote. But so get that plan together. Make sure you're ready to go uh, whenever you do plan to vote. The second is be a participating voter. Also because of COVID, we've seen uh, a high rate of absenteeism across poll workers. And that's due to the average age of uh, the election of volunteers or poll workers is 66. And, and that starts to enter into the at-risk cohorts of uh, COVID. And then the third, third piece is, is be a patient voter. Never before have election have official election results uh, come out on election day. There is set in law in individual state law, the certification processes for the vote for the state election officials. We have to put our confidence and trust state election officials. They're professionals. They do this every day. This is their career. Uh, they're natural risk managers, but they are out there. They're counting votes. They're sometimes they'll be counting them twice. Um, but we've got to place our trust and confidence in our state election officials. This is what uh, this is what they they've worked their lives for. What can you've worked in the private sector, um, mm -hmm. right? You you were uh, previously at Microsoft, uh, so I, I would think that you'd be uh, particularly well poised to think about what the private sector can do um, in partnership uh, with state and local officials yep. to beat back some of the disinformation that may emerge. How can, uh, you know, Twitter, Facebook, uh, Instagram, and so on, partner and be an asset to security officials, uh, both federal and, and state and local, uh, in trying to make sure that they are not unwittingly conveying disinformation uh, on election day in particular, but of course, in the run-up to election day as well as the we can expect the disinformation to start ramping up significantly uh, in the next 50 days. Well, the, the easiest partnership that's in front of us over the next 50 plus days is the private sector can, can give their employees paid time off to go be a poll worker, to go volunteer. So we're seeing that across the country. We saw uh, Ohio actually has really been a leader here um, between their state board of, uh, or their, their um, the Ohio Bar of, um, the bar. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> the Ohio bar, the um, Ohio uh, accountants board, they are providing um, uh, continuing, uh, whether it's legal education or otherwise, uh, to any, um, anyone that volunteers to work. We're seeing that happen across the country. We're seeing companies step up and provide PTO. We're also seeing um, things like the NBA and uh, Major League Baseball provide their venues, their parks that are these large, airy, open spaces that provide, that allow for appropriate social distancing 
that they can be used as polling locations because we have also seen a reduction in available polling places. So that's the first partnership that we'd really look for. On the second, you know, second piece of how can we work together to combat misinformation and disinformation, we have seen, again, I got to give a lot of credit to uh, the social media platforms on their, on their activities over the last few years to push back in particular on Russian activity, but others, you know, again, they, the bad guys have had to change their tactics because they've been disrupted in their, you know, classic techniques of 16. So it's just continuing to push the envelope, continuing to push, um, push the edge and identifying accounts and disrupting them. They, they tend to do it in a, in a generally content neutral way when informed by uh, law enforcement, uh, the law enforcement community. Uh, but, but I think the last thing is, again, it's, 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 if there is information that's related to the election process that's that's uh, inaccurate or disinfo, they're on top of it these days, and, and they will continue, I think, to get better over the course of the next uh, several days from or several weeks from flagging uh, posts and things like that. They'll, I think, they'll continue to do that. So, Chris, one one uh, further question on this: um, You have really emphasized the importance of transparency in your public statements and your work. Um, which is very much the theme that we're interested in talking about with our, our current program. Um, however, um, you are uh, running a federal agency um, that is beholden to a president who has not emphasized that, and indeed who has called um, the suggestion that Russia interfered in the 2016 elections uh, a hoax and who continues to strike that belligerent tone with regard to suggestions of Russian interference. Uh, what uh, position are you in relative to that atmosphere and that uh, leadership example with uh, regard to stemming the tide of disinformation uh, and potential hacking? Uh, and could this reach a, a sort of boiling point as we approach the elections? How do you handle that? So I think the, the well, the first point is I have all the empowerment that I need in my job to be successful. And I, I would, I would um, suspect that anyone I've worked with out there the last several years fully recognizes that. I think we have credibility as an agency that, that we're doing our job and we're doing it in a, in a very effective manner. On the second piece, I do think that, um, you know, the, the biggest risk right now, and this is ultimately the objective of, of many of these actors out there, is they want to undermine the confidence in the process. So we have to continue educating and building awareness on the things we've done over the last three and a half, four years to ensure the security and the integrity of the process. And, and a lot of the times, you know, unfortunately, the, the, the good news stories don't always get the, the front lines or the cryons. And so uh, to me, it's just maximum opportunity to engage. And so that's why, you know, I'm so appreciative uh, of this opportunity to, to talk to you folks about the good stuff we've been doing over the next, uh, the last few years. And, and we're going to, you'll be hearing and seeing a lot more of me, I think, over the next couple of weeks. Uh, and in the run-up, not just to November 3rd, but through November 3rd. But, but ultimately, I have confidence that this is going to be a uh, well-executed, uh, secure election um, and, and that we have done, uh, we've done the work that we need to do to ensure that, that every American out there uh, can, can also have confidence in the process and the outcome. I'm glad to hear that.
So Chris, this is Carrie. Um, I have one detailed question and then I want to close our conversation on a big picture piece that tees off from what you, um, what you just said. Um, the detailed question is this, um, to, to your point about uh, building confidence in the election, one of the things, and this is very sort of down in the weeds, but one of the things that it seems to me technologists who are looking at this issue and election security experts who are looking at these issues agree, agree across the board uh, is that paper ballot backups are the gold standard for being able to audit the outcome of the election. And then therefore the, the conclusion from that is that that would provide confidence. If we have that kind of record, it would provide confidence. Um, the last time we checked as in doing some research, it seemed like there were still a few states that don't have that. Can you, can you give us any insights as to, first of all, is that still true? Is that still from your understanding the state of play that there are a few states that still don't have yep. it? And then two, why not? Like, why, why is that hurdle so difficult to get over? Yeah, so, so it's, it's two things. It's not just paper. And you, you said the A word, but it's, it's paper ballots and auditing meaningful post-election audits. Those are the two together. That's really an incredibly powerful resilience measure. Um, and in 2016, I think we were looking at about 80 to 82 percent of the votes cast uh, had some sort of paper record associated with it. Uh, we were on track for 2020 to hit about 92 percent, and that's due to uh, the investments that Congress made, uh, over a billion dollars in, in election grants. Um, so we saw a lot of states surge forward and we, we were thinking about 92%, but I suspect because of that shift to absentee ballots, we may even see more than that. We may see something like 95%. And, and a great example is the state of New Jersey was one of those states that was still on track to have the direct recording equipment machines, which are the touch screens that would record uh, the vote on removable media, no paper. Um, why couldn't they get there? Well, their price tag for that system upgrade was about 140 million or something on, along those lines. And through the last couple of years of uh, grant funding, they were only you know getting about 14 to 20 million dollars. So they had a big delta. Um, but because of COVID, um, they elected to shift to an absentee voting structure. And so now, you, uh, you'll get a, 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 an absentee ballot in the mail. And, and again, that, those are, so there are certain benef benefits from, you know, I, not the right way to say that there are benefits from COVID, but you'll see sort of um, some, some results or some impacts that, that I think improve the, the overarching. Now, there are going to be other states out there, Texas, Tennessee, Indiana, uh, and, and a handful of others that will have some elements of those direct reporting, recording equipment. And again, a lot of this goes to funding. A lot of it goes to um, inconsistency and underfunding at the state level that I think that's one of the biggest policy discussions and conversations that, that we have to solve for going forward is what does consistent funding to state election officials look like? So not just so they know what they can buy on an annual basis, but also so state legislatures um, can figure out what they need to set on an annual basis um, in, as they set the, the, the state level appropriations. We figured this out for counterterrorism funding uh, in the post 9-11 years with the, federal, the various FEMA grant uh, processes, 
So I think there's an opportunity here to apply that sort of mentality or that sort of methodology to, to election officials. Great. Thank you. That's, that's a really helpful explanation. And so just to close our conversation, I want to come back to the issue of voter confidence. Um, where we are now, middle of September, looking ahead to the election, what are we going to see from, from CISA in particular to enhance voter confidence um, in the election, in the administration in the, in the election, and in, the, in confidence in the outcome of the election? What, what are we going to see from, from your organization between now and the election? Yeah. So we're going to continue to be out there. We'll be working with state and local election officials, providing them the information, the advice, the support, the services they need, whether it's um, additional guidance on emerging threats, incident response, if it's, if it's needed. So we'll, we'll keep those engagements. But really, we're in this phase now where we're shifting more towards empowering voters, putting empower, uh, voters uh, into a position where they can be a part of this, this national uh, defending democracy effort. And again, you know, it's about getting them the information where they can be prepared voters, giving them the opportunities to partic- uh, participate in democracy, not just by voting, but also by vol- volunteering um, at the, at, at, on election day. And then last thing, reinforcing the process, whether it's in the Constitution or law, how elections work. It's not just over on November 3rd. There, is, there are processes that take place. Again, election officials are natural risk managers, but more importantly, they're professionals. They're out there finding the, the, the votes that are good votes and counting those votes so that the, uh, the election is, is, is dependable um, and official. Wonderful. Chris Krebs, I want to thank you so much for joining us in this conversation that is part of the joint CNAS uh, Searle and APPC, Annenberg Public Policy Center Symposium on Protecting Democracy, Foreign Interference, Voter Confidence, and Defensive Strategies in the 2020 Elections and Beyond. I was joined again on this conversation um, by Claire Finkelstein. You can follow her on Twitter at CO Finkelstein. Um, by Chris Krebs, the first director of the CISA, and he's at CISA Krebs on Twitter. Um, And again, I'm Carrie Cordero. Thanks so much for listening. And we hope that you will also um, check out on the CNAS webpage, the other panel discussions that we've had as part of this uh, session this week. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to CNAS Live. To receive invitations to future public events and to learn more about our experts' work, visit cnas.org slash join. You can also connect with us on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening.